Well, if you've uh, been with us this fall, we've been marching through the book of Philippians, and today is the last sermon in that series. And uh, hit me last night, it's actually my last live sermon here at Ocean View. Feels a little bit surreal, um, but a privilege. And I want to say thank you at the beginning. Uh, thank you, church, for 13 years of... Uh, I guess I would say, yeah, letting me grow into this pulpit. That's the best way I could say. So thank you for that privilege. Well, this amazing letter that Paul wrote, uh, it's a masterful letter to this church in Philippi in northern Greece, Macedonia. It was a very Roman-dominated city. There were Roman soldiers and, and people from the Roman Empire dominating that city. And it's such a fascinating letter because Paul is continually jumping over cultures. He's, he's addressing Jewish people who lived in Philippi. He's, he's addressing those more Roman. He's, he's addressing those proud Greek people. Uh, and he's constantly jumping over all of those cultures. And Paul just does a masterful, masterful job of it. And if if you've uh, had any exposure before to the book of Philippians, the one constant theme that keeps coming up over and over and over is joy. Joy, joy, joy. There isn't a, a chapter in Philippians that uh, Paul isn't talking about our joy that's found in Jesus Christ and how it fills our lives. There was a guy named Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., and uh, the U.S. Supreme Court, he's kind of one of their most famous Supreme Court judges. And at one point in his life, a reporter was asking him, they're like, how, how did you end up choosing this career? What, what led up to this? And he had this really interesting statement. He said, I actually had feelings of trying to be a pastor. He says, I might have entered pastoral ministry. If certain pastors I knew had not looked and acted so much like undertakers, his whole experience of pastors was just grumpy, dour looking, not happy, no joy kind of people. And that's the exact opposite of the way Paul says we should be living our Christian lives. Joy is so important. And that theme, again, crops up over and over, and it certainly does in our first two verses today. Paul writes, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. So that brings us to our first point, joy in Jesus, period. Well, following Jesus is a marathon, not a sprint. <coughs> Many of the different aspects of the Christian life mature over time. One of those things is how you read the Bible. Maturity helps you notice certain things. And these verses are kind of an example. Because when most people come to this chapter in Philippians, they're so excited about verses 6 and 7. <coughs> Excuse me. Verses 6 and 7 are these famous verses that talk about God's peace coming on us, this supernatural peace. And so people come to verses 4 and 5 and they read, Rejoice in the Lord always. They say, yeah, 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 that's good. Let me get on to the important part. Let me get on to the important part where Jesus gives me his peace. Except it's an absolute tragedy 
to skip over these verses. Paul is writing them for a purpose. And we are actually meant to slow down and read those verses. Rejoice in the Lord. We're meant to reorder our hearts, our minds, our lives around that command. So what exactly does it mean to rejoice in the Lord or rejoice in Jesus? There's a Bible scholar, J.A. Motyer, and he's really helpful. He says, The essence of the matter is to value Jesus Christ, long for the smile of his approval, so much that nothing else matters in comparison. He is all of our joy. (coughs) Now, of course, we get joy from lots of things in life. Hug from your daughter, your son, your grandchild will give you joy. Doing something for your spouse, watching their face light up in appreciation, that gives us joy. Maybe enjoying a special meal out with friends and being blown away with just how amazing the food is. All of those are good gifts of God and they all give us joy in our hearts. But they aren't the foundational. They aren't the building block of joy in our lives. Jesus is. As a staff right now, we are reading Mark Clark's excellent book, The Problem of Jesus, answering a skeptic's challenge to the scandal of Jesus. The entire chapter on Tuesday, actually, in our staff discussion, had this as the main point. And there was two quotes that really kind of smacked me upside the head, caused me to sit up and take notice. Here's the first one. (coughs) He says, Our primary motivation for coming to Christ should not be the desire to go to a place called heaven as opposed to the punishment of hell. It should be driven by a desire to be with the one we love. You know, this distinct memory being at Camp Quanos, I was in my early 20s and I was sharing a room with a bunch of uh, visiting staff. And, uh, you know, you're a bunch of young guys in your 20s. Of course, you're not going to sleep right away. There's lots of banter and joking back and forth, back and forth. And at one point, the one guy said, you know, the most important part of following Jesus, just accepting him in your heart. You get a good start, who really cares what happens after that? And even in my early 20s, I was like, I don't think that's exactly right. But I didn't really have enough knowledge or or theological training to kind of really give him a good answer back. But now at age 50, when I look back and I read verses like verses 4 and 5, rejoice in the Lord always. Paul says, again, I say. Paul's like, you've got to get this, folks. This is our foundation of joy. It's actually in Jesus We don't just follow him because of what he does for us. It's not just the ticket to heaven. It's actually he himself. He's the most amazing person all of the existence of all the universe. And it's a huge privilege as followers to get to know him. Pastor and author John Piper says a very similar thing like this. He says, the gospel is not a way to get people to heaven. It's a way to get people to God. It's a way of overcoming every obstacle to everlasting joy in God. If we don't want God above all things, we have actually not been truly converted by the gospel. What a statement. Love it. So stop and, and think about your own life this week. How is your prayer life? 
Do you have opportunities to pray throughout the week? When you think back on the prayers you pray, was it only a shopping list? Was it only a a long list of requests? And there's nothing wrong with that. God invites us to do that. But I think the Apostle Paul's trying to tell us prayer is also just enjoying Jesus for who he is. Do you ever pray a prayer like, Jesus, you're amazing. I want to know you more. Fill me. Help me do that. And when I read these verses again, I'm struck by the fact that they are not just a mere suggestion. Paul doesn't just kind of give us a happy suggestion. He doesn't say, hey there, church in Philippi, you really should think about how important it is to rejoice in the Lord. Seriously, take some real delight in Jesus. It's great. It will do you some good. He doesn't do it. He doesn't offer it as a a suggestion. He actually gives it as a command. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. What a beautiful, solid foundation. And from there, Paul moves from one, on to one of the greatest promises in all of the Bible. Here we go, verses 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Simply titled this point number two, one of the greatest promises. I want to stop and think about songs for a second. Songs have an ability to instantly relax you, don't they? Maybe you're a classic musical, classical music lover. Maybe you hear something from Mozart, like Solaria from The Marriage of Figaro. And it just kind of relaxes you, takes you to that other place. Maybe you're more of a a classic rock person. Maybe you want like peaceful, easy feeling by the Eagles. Something that just totally relaxes you. Or maybe it's something a little bit more recent like Michael Bublé's I Just Haven't Met You Yet. But there's one instantly recognizable song that just seems to take our stress away. This great little whistling jam from Bobby McFerrin in 1988. And we're going to play it. You don't have to be cool. You can sing along when he starts singing here. Here's a little song I wrote. You might want to sing it note for note. Don't worry. Be happy. In every life we have some trouble When you worry you make it double Don't worry Be happy Don't worry, be happy now Don't worry Be happy that and you are stressed in your life puts a little smile on your face relaxes you for a bit but it doesn't take too long and whatever it was that kind of had you worried the problems the issues the things plaguing your mind they do come back don't they the song's a good temporary distraction but it won't give us lasting peace 
But these two verses in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, they actually map out a real, lasting, and sustainable peace. And it builds off what we talked about on our first point, rejoicing in the Lord, knowing Jesus deeper and deeper, and the assurance that Jesus is always with us. And based on that foundation, Paul can then command us, do not be anxious about anything. On a day-in, day-out level in our lives right now, could there be a more welcoming command? People are so stressed out, so anxious all over the place. I admit I've only been on planet Earth for 50 years, but this is the highest anxiety level I've ever witnessed in my life even amongst our teenagers and young adults. So what's the secret? Do we just kind of sit in our rooms and try to really hard not to be anxious? Not at all. The Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, shows us the path. He says, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And that's so beautiful because Paul's ultimately saying, do not be scared to bring all of those things in your life to me. Bring all of your requests, all of the emotions, everything that's troubling you. F.F. Bruce, one of the greatest Bible scholars of the past 50 years, stated it this way. He says, an essential element in prayer is asking God for things with the same trustful spirit as a children show when they ask their fathers for things. It's that little feeling when you had when you're five and you just know dad can figure it out. You don't have to worry about it. He'll, he'll figure it out. That's amazing. And then Paul says that very interesting little phrase. He says, with thanksgiving. Why does Paul say that? Is that sort of like a magic formula that God will only answer our prayers if we say thanks enough? No, that's not the point. A grateful remembrance of past blessings is a safeguard against anxiety in the future. It adds confidence to the person praying for continued blessings. That's so true. So true in our, in our Christian walk. When we look back and we go, you know what? God helped me here. He rescued me here. He saved me here. This is so amazing. Then it gives us confidence to ask for the future. You say, God's never let me down in the past. Why would he let me down in the future? Well, all of this builds up to this amazing promise, the payoff. We have followed the path Paul lays out. And as a result, we get to this incredible life-changing promise. He says, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts in your minds, in Christ Jesus. Two amazing parts of that transcends all understanding. There are some times in life when you're facing something so severe, so right in your face, so horrible, you can't see a way out, and yet, somehow, the peace of Christ comes over you. And your rational brain says, I shouldn't be calm right now, I shouldn't be peaceful. And yet somehow the peace of Christ does transcend all understanding. I've experienced that in my life. I know you have. 
And I love the imagery. It says, we'll guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Almost picture like a soldier with a shield and a spear. He is standing over you. He's standing over your peacefulness. He's standing over your hearts and minds, and he's guarding it in Christ. What a beautiful imagery. Someone said this great thing about worry. They said, why worry when you can trust? Worrying's like a rocking chair. Gives you something to do. Doesn't get you anywhere. Love that. Ultimately, you need this incredible promise of peace. I need this incredible promise of peace. And our world desperately needs this kind of assurance. It's one of the million benefits of following and knowing Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Well, finally, Paul reaches the end of kind of the big part of the passage, and he makes the jump from the peace in our hearts and our minds to correct thinking in our heads. We're going to read verses 8 and 9 of chapter 4. Paul writes, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, Put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. What an amazing little piece of Scripture. It tells us to get our heads on straight, because when we have clear thinking and God-honoring thoughts, it ultimately our actions will follow. Now, it's quite this list that Paul has put together. The first one in the list is, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true think about that. Sounds easy enough. Just think about true stuff. Monarch butterflies travel all the way from parts of Canada to forests in northern Mexico. That is a true fact, and it's probably good to think about. Probably not going to change your life, but it's good to think about. Salmon swim way out in the Pacific Ocean, almost two-thirds of the way to Japan before they turn around and come back to the exact creek they were born in. We got to see it in Holland Creek this year. Amazing stuff. It's a true fact. Human beings are created in the image of God. That, again, is a true fact. But what about truth that comes at a cost? If being truthful means that we have to admit that we are wrong and truthfully own up to a mistake, that is way harder to do. What about a business trying desperately to sell its product? Maybe just... Fudging the truth a little bit is a lot easier. There's lots of famous examples, but one from 2014, L'Oreal of Paris. They're a company who makes makeup products. And in 2014, they put out this whole series of ads. And it was this amazing cream that was just going to make you look like 30 years younger and all this stuff. And uh, on the sides, these are some of the ludicrous claims they make. Every great discovery begins by pushing the boundaries of science. After 10 years of research, now we have that recovery formula that can make you look so young. And all over that ad is things like clinically tested. There's even some bizarre statement about it will boost your genes. What does that mean? 
Well, the American AT or FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, someone showed them this ad and they went, huh, I wonder if that's all true. So they knocked on the door of L'Oreal Paris and they said, your ads claim that you did 10 years of clinical testing for all this stuff. We would just love to see those, those clinical tests. And they all went, um, well, uh, actually, there are no tests. And they had to admit that all of these claims had no basis whatsoever. In the end, the, the FTC in the United States banned them from using phrases like clinically proven, those kind of things. That's just one example of a company that's lying about their products, not telling the truth. Now, here's where it really meets the rubber hits the road. What if you or I were an executive at that company? Would we stand up and say, no, this is wrong. We can't be lying to consumers like this just for profit. What if it costs us our job? Would we still tell the truth? Maybe you would. If you did your morning Bible devotions on Philippians chapter 4, felt the conviction to think about and proclaim the truth. When our heads are on straight, when our thinking is correct, it ultimately leads to right action. Paul gives the rest of the items in this amazing list that we're supposed to think about. He says, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent, or praiseworthy, think about such things. And a lot of people have looked at that list and pointed out, you know what? You know who perfectly fulfills that list? It's Jesus. Each one of those characteristics is a characteristic of Christ. Is Jesus noble? Meaning, does he have an exalted moral character? Absolutely. The very highest. Is Jesus right and pure basically did jesus ever sin and incredibly enough he did not even when he was tempted for 40 days in the desert by the devil he didn't commit any sin even through his betrayal his false trial his crucifixion immense pain he never sinned amazing hard to comprehend then it says the question is is jesus lovely not kind of in the sense of the word lovely, like we would maybe see a bride on her wedding day in her wedding dress and go, oh my goodness, she looks lovely. It's not that, it's more the way that Jesus acted, the way that he allowed anyone who came to him in faith to come to his feet. Over and over, Jesus treated Roman soldiers with incredible grace. He treated prostitutes. He treated Pharisees. Jesus had this lovely way of dealing with people. Is Jesus admirable? Absolutely, 100%. Billions of people on planet Earth admire Jesus. Even folks from other religions admire Jesus. So when you and I are commanded by the Apostle Paul, directed by the Holy Spirit to change our thinking, to get our heads on straight, what we should be directing our thoughts to is actually the person and work and character of Jesus Christ. And that actually seems like a pretty appropriate way to close my final sermon at Ocean View.
talking about how great Jesus is. And in conclusion, I would like to quote the great African-American preacher. His name is S.M. Lockridge. And he wrote a sermon called My King. And he has an unforgettable description of who Jesus is. This is what he says. The Bible says Jesus is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. And he's the king of the ages. He's the king of glory. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of kings. And he is the Lord of lords. Now that's my king. Do you know him? He says, my king is the key of knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness, and he's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory, and he's the master of the mighty. He's the captain of the conquerors. He's the head of the heroes. He's the leader of the legislators. He's the overseer of the overcomers. He's the governor of governors. He's the prince of princes. He's the king of kings and he's the lord of lords. And that's my king. Do you know him? He's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. I'm trying to tell you the heaven of heavens cannot contain him, let alone a man explain him. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't get him off of your hands. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. The Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. The witnesses couldn't get their testimonies to agree. And Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. And the grave couldn't hold him. That's my king. Amen?